albums that changed my life as a rock and roll bedtime stories uh, spinoff series where either me, Brian, or a friend or colleague sits down and talks about one of their favorite records of all time. And for this episode, I have executive producer of Rock and Roll Bedtime Stories, Leif Benson, longtime friend, longtime fan, I, I think probably has been a part of and listened to more of my podcasting history than any other human on the face of the earth. Yeah, I've been listening to shows with you since you were Brian Smith on the radio. <laughs> yeah, you're right. You did know me on the radio. I did. Yeah, so uh, he has been a an invaluable resource in sort of guiding rock and roll bedtime stories uh, direction and, and giving us ideas and sort of helping us with flow and stuff. He listens to a lot of podcasts, knows a lot of stuff, and is a, is a great friend and friend of the family. So I've been it's been exciting to work together with this on you. And so with this with you on this. So when I, uh, when I did this albums, uh, that changed my life concept, you were very quick to say, if I get to do it, I want to do. And you told me what album you wanted to do. Like you had it pretty quickly. So really quick. Tell us why this record, this record came out, uh, one week before I turned 15 years old, uh, back in October of 1992, I was, uh, Let's see, I would have been a sophomore in uh, high school because I was the youngest person in my class. Uh, I had just recently um, changed my name. Everyone had known me by my first name, Josh, uh, going up until my freshman year. And that's whenever I decided, hey, there are way too many Joshes at Owensboro <laughs> High School. And so I started going by my middle name, Leif. I, so wait, wait, why Leif? What your middle name? That's it's just my middle name, and it's it's one of those things that it, it's really dumb because a lot of times I still introduce myself to people. I'm like, "Hey, my name's Leif Benson." And I'm like, "I'm a jackass." You know, you you don't know another Leif, so you just call me Leif. <laughs> uh, it is it is nice because uh, it is it's you know what four letters. It's yes. one syllable. It, it doesn't take a lot, and it's pretty easy to hear. Do you have people ask you, like, wait, wait, what did you say? Did you say Leif? All the time. I remember uh, in college, uh, I w- <laughs> it was specifically in a uh, in an English class. It was a Cormac McCarthy study. We we read every single Cormac McCarthy book, and it was in the late '90s when VH1 Behind the Music was really big. And this one time. Uh, I sat down and this this girl sat next to me and she said, your name's Leif, right? And I'm like, yeah. And she said, kind of like Leif Garrett, the the pop star from <laughs> right. Behind the Music. Right. That's and I, my only other frame of reference. And I was like, yeah. She says, you kind of look like him. Like not when he was good looking and young, but like when he was strung out. And I'm like... Okay. You, just, you described every conversation I had with a girl at high school. So yeah. Uh, so it, you also mentioned changing your or going by a different part of your name. Uh, yeah. I, I had a, I had a close friend that did that as well. We all went to college. He stayed and went to school in town, and we all came home after the first semester. And people started telling us about this guy Charles, and we were like, we literally didn't know who Charles was. We're like, oh, we should meet Charles, and we soon figured out that Charles was Chris. He just started going by. His, uh, I guess he's Charles Christopher. So flip flop of what you did, right? So he yeah. he decided to go by his his actual first name, and so I, it's I, I like that as a setup for this album. The idea that you were like, okay, I've got uh, everything. Everything is new. I'm starting this new chapter of my life. I'm starting with a new name, and now I've got a new record. Now tell me what what were the songs? What were the bands that had meant a lot to you up to this point? Okay. Um... 
So this was in the whenever I first transitioned from tapes to CDs. The first the first CDs I ever owned, and I, this this is a wide range of of two bands. One was Phil Collins, but seriously live. Yes, and the second was Red Hot Chili Peppers, Blood Sex Magic. I, I mean it. it yes. It's it's a range, but it's like a, it's a range. I get it. I get it. Um, Which, by the way, I had to have my aunt buy me that album because parental it, it had the parental sticker on it, and they would the Waxworks in Owensboro, Kentucky, would not let me buy it. <laughs> okay, so that's your frame of reference. You're coming from Phil Collins and the Red Hot Chili Peppers, and what what did you know about REM before this? Because this is obviously not the first REM record. No, no. Um, I I really enjoyed Out of Time. I mean, and the, the other thing you have to realize is in 1992, how big of a deal MTV was. Like, right, sure. And and I grew up. We didn't have cable until I was in the middle school, and then all of a sudden, it's just like it's a new world. Boom! Like yeah. hormones are running, and all of a sudden, I'm watching <laughs> MTV Spring Break, and I'm like, whoa. But so so yeah, like it it was such a big deal. I remember, like even now, I still like hear an old older song, and the first thing I think of is that video. Sure. And so, REM they were such a big deal back then, um, and it's it's strange to think like if you describe this to your kids, like hey, the biggest band in the world whenever Leif was in high school was a bunch of guys that looked like they went to magic conventions. <laughs> because you're right, you're right. I mean, they had a very specific look and this was part of a movement, right? This was the the college rock thing coming out of the 80s. You know, they're from Georgia instead of yes. being from one of the coasts. I mean, it is a whole thing with them. Okay. Bill Berry, the drummer, had a unibrow. Mike Mills had big round glasses and braces. <laughs> Like adult braces, not now. Like in the late eighties and nineties, yeah, adult yeah, braces yeah, yeah. were that was not a thing ever. No, uh, Michael Stipe, who wore eyeliner constantly, and Peter Buck, who is an amazing, amazing, oh yeah, musician, but looks like a dude that hands out candy out of a van. I mean, <laughs> the dude just looks creepy. But they were the most popular band from the late 90s to from like 1990 to 1995. They were literally the biggest band. They had the biggest contract on Warner Brothers Records, the biggest label. It's it doesn't it doesn't make sense anymore. No, and especially you know this was a, a thing we talk about a lot on the show is how the idea of selling out doesn't exist anymore. But in in the early nineties, this was a band that had started very small. This is their eighth record. It is, and 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 so I mean that's a that's a lot of output in between yeah. beginning and this point, and they are huge. And and I think there were a lot of people who felt like. For to you know, up to this point, that REM was just theirs, yeah, and this is really their coming out party to the rest of the world in terms of here we are, yeah, and this is our our most commercial and and probably the most successful record they do. It's it's the best record they've ever made. It's the most probably the most popular, 
And there's a there's a term in when people are doing like land speed racing, it's called a flying mile. And what it is is when someone's trying to go insanely fast on a motorcycle or or a car, they have so many miles to get up to speed, and then they are judged by how fast they go one mile, and then they then they have so many miles to slow down. Right. Automatic for the people is REM's flying mile. It's when they gathered so much steam that they were firing on all cylinders and they were kicking ass. They went, they went, they did it, and then they gradually started slowing down. Well, Bill Barry had an aneurysm, so he had to quit the band. So that's not really a... Yeah. That's not really slowing down. That's 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 putting <laughs> that's on a hard emergency stop. break. That's a hard stop, yeah. Okay, well, let's listen to, to the record. What we're going to do uh, on, on these shows is we go through the record track by track, and we just reflect a little bit on each song. So we're going to start it at the beginning, and we're going to start with a song called Drive. What if I ride? What if you walk? What if you rock around? What if you did? What if you walk? What if you tried to get off? What are your recollections of this video? You've already brought up MTV, so do you remember the drive video? Oh yes, it was uh, it was black and white, and it was for the most part. All it was was Michael Stipe crowd surfing and just this slow music. Like every now and then Peter Buck was for some reason wet, like they were spraying <laughs> him down. That was kind of disconcerting. But it's just it's just Michael Stipe just slowly singing this this really weird song. It's it's such a strange uh song to put on the very first first track as well as that was the first uh that was the first single, I believe. So, fun fact about this video—I don't know if you know this. So, would, they shot it in Cali- in, in uh, Sherman Oaks, and they did it over two nights. And Oliver Stone showed up to this video shoot because why wouldn't he show up? <laughs> and River Phoenix was at the video shoot. Now they weren't in it, but they were at it. Now you know who was an extra who becomes a famous actor later. Um, is it Adam Scott? Adam Scott. That's right. Is an I extra that. in this video. Yeah, it's a craziness. Um, they also like there was a weird thing about this song where Scott Litt, who who produces the record, says that uh, Pete and Mike are really into Queen at the time, and so they're the the way they arranged it, they were trying to make it feel like a Queen song, which is not really what I get when I listen to that. No, it's it's. <laughs> No, I don't think Freddie Mercury in any way whenever I think that. <laughs> Hear that. All right. Uh, and again, remember, at any point, if there's, if there's a certain memory to any of these songs for you make, sure you, make sure you tell us. Track number two, a little track called Try Not to Breathe. I will try not to breathe. This decision is mine. I have lived a full life. These are the eyes that I want. How do you typically feel about songs about death? Is that typically a subgenre of music that you enjoy? Well, whenever I was a 15-year-old, of course. I mean, I was a 15-year-old growing up in the 90s. Of course I was a little obsessed with death. 
uh, a little disaffected, a little pre-emo. I, I like oh, it. Yeah. I like it, it. I mean, it's it's a great emo track that I've read. Uh, I've read later on that it's that Michael Stipe said that you know his his grandmother had just died. He had a cat or a dog that was like about to about to die. And he thought he had AIDS, and he, he oh, was man. so scared to get tested. And so, obviously, you know, that that's where he wrote that from. Wow. Uh, now, me being a really weird 15-year-old kid in Owensboro, Kentucky, I I just was like, whoa, this is kind of interesting. And, and in all honesty, um, now that I think about it, that was – you know that came out a month or two after my grandmother died, and so I, I'm sure I, I'm sure I felt drawn to it in some ways because of it. So, do you feel like REM was at least in the emotional and thematic sense a precursor to what later becomes emo? Of course, I think I think REM is REM might be the last popular band that that has influenced every everyone that I everyone that I still listen to. I mean mm, every, everyone yeah it's it's the one like there's just no popular music anymore. There's just Yeah niche. Just, everything's niche. Yeah. Yes. And so so I think REM is gonna be the last band that everybody cites that hey they they influenced me. Like I know Dashboard Confessional. I think Dashboard Confessional, did they not do an MTV Unplugged with R.E.M. and did like an entire album? You know, I don't know. We'll have to look that up. I It it seems sort of familiar now it, that you say that. I remember it, but I cannot find it anywhere. But I, I remember, I feel like I saw it at Target in 2002. I mean, they definitely the did an MTV Unplugged. Now I don't know if they did something specific with REM, but I, you know, it makes a lot of sense, of and I, you can definitely see that connection through even through the instrumentation in the early parts of Automatic for the People. So, track number three is Sidewinder Sleeps Tonight. You, you know the reference point for this song, right? Uh, it's it's the lion sleeps tonight. Yes. like he even does it at the beginning. Yeah, which is hilarious. And they actually make it the B side when they when they release this as a single. They do lion sleeps tonight on the other side of the single. My favorite part of this song is um, right before he sings the line about Dr. Seuss. Like Michael Stipe starts laughing while he's singing, and they keep it in there. And it's always one of those things. It's it's like that little thing that I always look for. I I actually played this for my daughter this morning uh, as we were as we were driving to school, and uh, and I just usually she just wants to listen to BTS or the Encanto um, album, and so I just put this on. I didn't say anything. And I stopped to get her a donut, and whenever I got back, she goes, Daddy, he said a bad word. He said A-S-S. And she's obsessed with the word ass right now. Um, she thinks it's so funny that she loves to catch it. And I was like, yeah, uh, the singer Michael Stipes, he he sometimes says some bad words. 
Yeah. So I'm just glad that that's the word she caught. That's, and not, that's the one. Right. I thought, I didn't know where we were going. I was, with that. De- I was definitely not letting her listen to star, star me kitten. Yeah. Yeah. Good choice. Good parenting choice there. Um, so, it, you know, fun fact about this song, it is a, one of the songs in their catalog that they have never done live. I don't doubt it. I, I've actually seen an interview one time and I know I, it's the thing that I know I shouldn't do. It's the thing that I've, the reason why I hate Ryan Adams, which is I always listen to somebody talk about their old songs, and then they always just crap on them. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. And I just, and it makes me so mad because it's just like I like that song. Don't don't crap on that song because you're crapping right. on me. Yeah. But Michael Stipe <laughs> says that he hates that. He says I really don't like that song, but it's the one of the catchiest songs we ever yeah ever wrote, and I I hum it all the time. He says. Well, this brings us to one of the most well-known moments on this record, and one that I think resonates with a lot of people, especially when we're talking about videos, and that, of course, is uh, Everybody Hurts. Greatest video of all time. Does it rank in your top ten personal? It definitely is. It's it's a memorable. You 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 remember you remember that that freeway and everybody just, and the dude. dude just standing there and and just uh just for the listeners at home, I wish you could have seen Brian while we were listening to that. He closed his <laughs> eyes. He he didn't do a diva finger, but he wanted to. He didn't do a diva finger. He did air he, piano. He did air, air piano. little air piano. I mean, it is the vocal on this. Like when people talk about Michael Stipe being an amazing vocalist, like this is where you hear it. And it's not because necessarily he's doing things with his voice that other people can't do. It's the it's that again. It's back to that emotional element that they are able to put in their music and how you feel every word he sings. And it's just such a it, it, it's such a simple thought, right? Just, right. Everybody hurts, and it's just like, of of course, everyone should understand this song. And the craziest place I ever heard this song was one time um, we were sitting in church, and all of a sudden that we were having special music, and all of a sudden this lady who was big and bombastic she started like i heard the first notes and i was like she's not gonna do this this is she really doing this, this? Gonna happen? and then all of a sudden <laughs> when the day is long and i'm and i look over to my wife and i'm just like okay we're going I'm to in, church we're i'm here for church. this yeah that's oh man that's amazing well yeah it is that video still is just i i think if i in terms of effective videos i mean it's definitely their best in my opinion yes um but it ranks very 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 high so the next track on this record is new orleans instrumental number one which i'm not going to play but how do you feel in general about instrumentals on rock records well anytime you had to you have to title it with a number one uh it means it it I, hopefully it was the best one uh but it, it's it's good it's a it's a good way to to sort of uh, break it up. And if I remember right, I think this is where the tape 
the tape turned. If I remember right now, I could be I could be mistaken, but I do remember. Inst- I think if it instead of being a side A and B, there was a side drive and ride. If I remember right, okay, okay. That, I mean that's only thirty years ago, but uh, <laughs> I, the other the thing about the cassette tape was it was yellow. I was going to say, when was the last time you saw this cassette tape? I do, I do remember. It's funny thinking back about cassettes. The ones that stick out are the ones that were different colors to yes. me. So, um, fun little marketing thing that that really works. I remember getting uh, Green, the album Green, I believe, on cassette from the library when I was a kid. Of course. Yeah, and uh, and just listening to Pop Song 89 over and over. Um, okay, so let's talk about the next track. That would be the, the sixth song on the record, if you count the instrumental, Sweetness Follows. Listen here, my sister and my Lots of orchestration on this one. Very well put together song. Yes. Now, uh, we haven't talked about this yet, but the person that arranged uh, the orchestration for this album, uh, he was in a band that you might have heard of um, with uh, Robert Plant and Jimmy Page. John Paul Jones. John Paul Jones on the instrumentation for R.E.M., yeah, he did. He did Cashmere and Automatic for the People. <laughs> Are you a Zeppelin fan? Eh, I mean, I, you have to you have to enjoy Zeppelin at some point. Yeah, I yeah, mean, yeah, yeah. It, you you can appreciate it, but I'm not. Um, you know, I, I wouldn't have been that kid, uh, the kid in um, Almost Famous that was like, you know, lurking around the the Hilton Hotel looking for them. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So. So, yeah, I mean, that's yeah. the thing. There's a lot of bands from that era where it's like, hey, I I understand their importance, but I don't necessarily, you know, want to know everything about them. I don't or, just yeah. I don't I don't just go home and be like, I really need to listen to Stairway tonight to un, unwind and relax. <laughs> <laughs> Track number seven on Automatic for the People is called Monty Got a Raw Deal. Nonsense isn't new to me. I know my head, I know my feet. The mischief knocked me in the knees. So just let go. Just let go. You know what distinction this song has? It's a song. It's, it, it was written on a bazooki. Do you know what a bazooki is? You know, I remember hearing that Peter Buck talked about how he had to buy a bazooki, but I have no clue what it is. <laughs> I'm going to be real honest. I don't really either. But uh, apparently he, he plucked this out on a bazooki. And um, does it look like a sitar? Because it's, it's sort of like a mandolin, but deeper. Oh, sure. I'll believe anything. <laughs> I wrote the main riff on my bazooki in the hotel room in New Orleans, Buck told Rolling Stone, recalling that it happened in the middle of the night when a particularly affectionate couple were conducting business one room over. Uh, you know, <laughs> hey, that's that's weird that you get Monty got a raw deal out of that, but hey, you know, you I, live and you learn. I, I, well, I really do need to know the answer. Did Monty, in fact, get a raw deal? Well, I think, actually, the, the interesting thing that I think uh, Michael Stipe has said before is everybody obviously thinks Monty Hall when you talk yeah. about a deal, but uh, I believe it was about some uh, some closeted actor uh, in the fifties, I believe. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
I believe you're right. Um, okay, I mean, what what are your thoughts on this song? Where do you fall it, in terms of like if this is on the scale of least favorite, most favorite? Th- this is this is probably my least favorite track on the on the album. But still, I mean, even even your least favorite track on your favorite album is still better than a lot of tracks that so, you ever listened to. Right. So that's sort of how I qualify what I count as a favorite record, right? Is what are the albums that I listen to straight through and don't even feel you don't even feel the urge most of the time to yeah. skip ahead, right? So you're saying Monty is, is better than average, but yeah. for the REM caliber that's on this record it's the I, least. I don't I don't think there's a lot of uh REM fans that are just like, man Monty got a raw deal. That's that is that is my song. That's the one that speaks to me. <laughs> How about Ignoreland? Songs on automatic for the people. This is a this is a rocker. Like this one is loud. This is this is a very different song, and I, I love this song because it feels like a callback to uh, when they were college radio darlings. Which right? is not yeah. No one no one knows what the term college radio is. College radio was alternative music pretty much before REM, and Ignoreland is such a great. Uh, just, I mean, REM was obviously a very political right, uh, right, right. band, and it's a very political song, and um, something something that's not necessarily for automatic for the people, but it was the album before, um, back in uh, when they came out with Out of Time, you know, they used to have the boxes that CDs came in. Right, right, right. Well, uh, REM decided that all that cardboard was wasted space, so they put a uh, the Motor Voter Amendment uh little card that people could cut out. They could send it to their senator or congressman. And evidently, it, they people just sent them by the droves. Thousands and thousands went to Congress. And eventually, it it made them change the law. So, I mean, like I said, REM, REM is definitely a political band. And there's this is their most political and political song. Because, I mean, they basically just say... They're all bastards. So. Yeah. Now it's the opening line. And Mike, yes. Mike Mills is on the record as saying, quote, this is Michael Michael's rolling against Republican politics. Yeah. I mean, the opening line is these bastards stole all the power from the victims of the us versus them years. Uh, did I tell you about the time I, I met Mike Mills? No. I was at a derby party and uh, he was there and I stood very close to him. I don't know if I actually met him in terms of like saying hey i'm brian hey i'm mike but i was just very interested in the fact that he was there and like i was like this is the freaking guy from rem and i just sort of was was he wearing interesting glasses and or was did he have bedazzled uh blazer on because that's that's what Uh he wore yep that was his move he he was he looked he looked the part for sure i mean he looked like a very nerdy porter wagner Sort of what he looks like still, and I remember Mina's, uh, Mira Sorvino was at this party as well, and so like I sort of remember them being together, like just uh, like 
they didn't know each other, but they were like sort of like yeah. Hey, we are two. You <laughs> so, see, some more recognizable see, people will. Cross you see together. two very recognizable people that are, and you're just like, why are you two here at the same space that yeah. I'm I'm in yeah. in this universe? Uh, hey, there's also a quote from Peter Buck about Ignoreland where he he says that the song is written in Neil Young's tuning. Quote unquote. <laughs> quote, not that he owns it, but the E's are tuned down to D's like in Cinnamon Girl. I'll admit it. That's who I stole the tuning from. Uh, yeah, that's a rocker, man. Uh, next up on the on the record is the song that you didn't play for your daughter this morning, uh, Starmy Kitten. say that when you decided you wanted to do this album I, I for me this is a little bit of a mood record but it, to you it seems more transcendent than that yeah it, it it definitely is it's it's one of the even this which is a very slow song and it's and it's it's a hard right turn after ignore land but this it's this is michael stipe just having some really weird love songs and i know he talks about how he hates to write love songs and Star Me Kitten is a very, very good example of that because it is a weird, weird love song. And interestingly enough, uh, it was not originally titled Star Me Kitten. It was originally titled F Me Kitten. Hmm. And uh, they were recording it in uh, Seattle, Washington, of all places. And who by chance comes by the studio and says that she really loves this song is Meg Ryan, who is in town filming Sleepless in Seattle. And she goes, oh, this is a great song. She said, but the title is going to, it's not going to work. And they're like, well, why not? Which is really weird. This might just be a made-up story that they said. But they're like, why wouldn't this work? And she's like, well, where I'm from, my parents wouldn't let me buy a record that had that that word. word." Yeah, yeah. And so... Somehow she single-handedly, legend legend B, she saved REM's automatic for the people from getting a parental advisory sticker on it. Oh, interesting. I'll tell you, I read a great book about um, about those movies uh, last year and lots of Meg Ryan trivia in that book, but that story was not there. Thanks, Meg. We, I, <laughs> 15-year-old Leif Benson... <laughs> Aunt wasn't going to buy two. The aunt was only going to buy one album. Yeah. The Red Hot Chili Peppers, you'd already cashed yeah. in that favor. Um, so then we get into the real, for me, the home run portion of the record, right? Yes. It, it ends really strongly with track 10, 11, and 12. And of course, 10, I, I go back and forth, and I, I think Everybody Hurts is my favorite song on this record, but of course, I do love Man on the Moon. Yeah, yeah, 
Is Mott the Hoople the most obscure band to get the most pop cultural references? Like, I feel like they get referenced all the time, but like, not very many people actually. They definitely, to them. they definitely do. And I'm gonna be perfectly honest here. There's, there's a lot of a lot of Michael Stipe's lyrics that I've always got confused and and misheard on this record. But I always used to think it was Martin Luther and the Game of Life, <laughs> which is very, very different. I was like, oh, wow, that's that's deep there. And his 95 theses. Yes. <laughs> wow, that's a good misheard lyric. Did it's, that make the book? Excuse me while I kiss this guy? Yes. That's hilarious. Yeah, this is a great, it's such a great song because, I mean, they literally named a movie after this song. That's true, yeah. I mean, what are, I can't what are your th- thoughts on that film? It's a, it's one of those that it's, it's always interesting uh, because I mean, every time I watch it, I just think, how did Jim Carrey and Courtney Love discuss anything? <laughs> like, that's one of those things that you're just like, I'd, re- I'd really like to hear those, that conversation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, I don't know. Um, wait, you know, I haven't asked you your favorite song on this record. Is your favorite song on this record Night Swimming? I don't know if it is or not. It, and it's it's one of those that... Is that sort of the hipster answer? That would sort of be the hipster answer. But it's almost so hip... It's almost like too hipster that it's just sort of like played out. Um, I, you know, it might be... It might be Man on the Moon. It might be Sidewinder Sleeps tonight. Yeah, all good choices. Let's hear Night Swimming. Night Swimming deserves a quiet night. The photograph on the dashboard taken years ago. You don't play the piano, do you? I, I did as a child. Did you? I did. I, I was I was pretty good at it from what uh, what my parents said. Um, okay, at what point did you quit? I quit when I was probably eight or nine years old. Oh, so b- before Automatic for the People. Well before Automatic for the People, yes. I always joke that if my dad had spent more time showing me Billy Joel and Elton John instead of the Beatles, that I would not have quit piano lessons. Uh, I, I totally agree. Like I, I remember playing the piano and... I just remember it was all songs that I did not like. Right. At the time, I thought, there's no way this is, I can be cool doing this, and I need something to be cool, because I had figured out that sports weren't going to work out for me, and so I was like, I got to do something that's going to make me sort of interesting, and so music was going to be the thing, but I was like, Mom, the piano doesn't seem like a good idea. Like, I can't take it with me. I can't impress girls with it, like, at a party at random, unless I just happen to be near one, which, you know, that's not always going to happen, so I got to have a better plan than this. Now, in retrospect, it is a big regret. I wish and, I'd learned to play the piano. Yeah, and obviously, once 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 you heard Ben Fodes play, you're like, son of a oh, bitch, yeah, I should have kept on doing that's that. That's 100% it. That's yeah. 100% it. So, my biggest memory of night swimming was uh, at, at Owensboro High School, we, we had a, uh, I was in a journalism class, and uh, the, there were some students from Western Kentucky University's journalism school that came up and they they had they had produced like it wasn't necessarily a film but it was it was a bunch of their photography shots that they had done and they pieced it together and they put night swimming on there and I'm like 
yes, I am into this. Like, obviously, like looking back, like, yeah, it's very similar to the music video, and sure, it probably wasn't as creative as I w- I thought it was. But when you're a sophomore, junior in high school, and you see these college kids, you're like, oh wow, that's amazing. Oh man, I, I totally. I was just thinking today about going to a journalism convention in high school because my daughter is going into high school and is going to a magnet for journalism, and so. It's really funny to think about my experiences doing that, and I do remember having those sorts of moments where, like, there would be a visiting class, or I'd I'd get to go into a seminar or something with like kids that were a little older, and just be like, "These are the coolest people on the planet." And you know what? They probably weren't. <laughs> they, they probably weren't. But we we were not smart enough to know that. But hey, real quick, one really cool fact about night swimming. Um, is the piano that they play? Uh, they play on this. Uh-huh. Um, it was recorded in Miami. It is the same piano that Layla was played on. Oh, I remember hearing that. What, did, did you? Was that on the? What is? Was that on the podcast uh, on on Spotify? The the sixty songs that, that explained the nineties. I think maybe it was because I have heard that. Somewhere. Which, by the way, if you if if you haven't heard that podcast, it's a great podcast. Brian and I. We talk about it quite frequently, and the interesting thing is when they had someone uh, talk about night swimming, they said they claimed that they hated night swimming. Yeah, they, they got somebody on the show to talk about how much they hated this song, which I was like, eh, doesn't do a lot for me, but Leif liked it. Yeah. Um, I saw Ingrid Michaelson perform night swimming once. That was good. Mm-hmm. Uh, Jason Isbell, um, he produced a he produced a, an album of all Georgia um, artists and oh. uh, he did it opened I believe yeah 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 it, it yeah, yeah, had yeah, night yeah. swimming on yeah. it as well as driver eight oh that's right that was recent yeah yeah it was some, it, I don't know it was sometime late last year so last track on the record automatic for the people is called find the river. a little Lisa Loeb stay vibe to it yeah yeah it's definitely um, it, it's a gr- it's great and it's a beautiful song that, that ties up this album so well and if if you look on Spotify the best is is after you look at this there's always the what else you might like <laughs> and the funniest thing about this album is it always gives 90 soft rock and 90 sad music <laughs> telling you the original emo band rem i mean it is this album to me has always been a puzzle because i remember being going to libraries and record stores as a as a kid when this record because i would have been there's a little bit of an age difference between us so i would have been nine when this record came out and i remember seeing it and thinking the album art looked super cool yes like and thinking this must be a rock album and people would say oh yeah rem is a rock band and when i hear this record every time i revisit it i'm like expecting it to be a little bit more like ignore land and all the way through and it isn't at and all it isn't it isn't until you get to monster and yeah. and i think and and from all my all my peer group i'm still i think i might be one of the few people that still really enjoy listening to monster and i was going to ask you what's your what's your feeling on that record I, I like monster i like monster a lot that's uh i saw rem um i saw rem on the monster tour radiohead opened up for them oh man yeah um it was pretty amazing it was 
it was just as bizarre as you would think an REM concert would be in the mid nineties. Like, um, there was, you know, they had all these images in the back and it, there was a ton of nudity on screen as well as everyone around me at the amphitheater. It seemed like I'm pretty sure, I'm pretty sure I saw somebody conceive that night, but I, I, I remember that was like such a thing. I remember when I watched the Woodstock 99 documentary, uh, that recently came out on HBO, uh, that I was reminded of how when I was a kid and I would go to concerts, it seemed like basically it seemed like the, the short clips you see of Woodstock now where they're like just Mm -hmm. people in the mud rolling around. Like it just seemed like constant decadence. And now I go to a concert and it's just a bunch of dudes holding beards and like nothing weird's happening ever. Yeah. (laughs) Like I just remember going to amphitheaters and everyone always asked me if I had weed and I don't know. And I don't know if it was just, I gave off a, I got weed vibe or they just literally asked everybody. I don't know. People that have listened to uh, this show know that my dad is minister. Yes. You've met my father and he, uh, I took him to see Bob Dylan few years ago and Dylan was headlining Mellencamp was in the middle and Willie Nelson opened and we got there in time for Mellencamp we missed Willie but we're standing on the field of this baseball stadium and a guy hands me a joint Mm-hmm. And my dad is on the other side of me. So the idea here is that I would take the joint and then hand it to my dad. Yeah. And then he would pass it to the next person. And I was like, oh, I was not anticipating this happening. So I just like, no, man, cool. Maybe you go the other direction. Yeah. Yeah. And then, and joints at concerts. Uh, I remember one time uh, I, I was at a festival uh, that was even stranger than those three people <laughs> on the same bill. Uh, it was a music festival down in Nashville, and I'm, it was Ziggy Marley, then Ben Folds Five, and then it was Jason and the Scorchers. And during what? Yeah, the <laughs> Jason and the Scorchers, they were headlining over Ben Folds Five. <laughs> I don't understand why, but I just remember. Uh, I remember during the Ziggy Marley concert a joint got passed by that all I can say was it was cartoon comically big. Like it looked like a cartoon (laughs) cigar. It was huge. It looked like somebody was passing around a mozzarella stick. Man, I have a Ziggy Marley experience. Very early, very early in my relationship with my now wife, we would just started dating and we, Somehow got tickets to Ziggy Marley at Dave's, which so we lived in the same yes. town back in the day. So you know Dave's, uh, R.I.P. Dave's on Dixon, uh, and he came. He was like an hour and a half late coming on, oh, and wow. And I just wanted to see Ziggy Marley come out because I just wanted to say I'd seen him. Yeah, and she wants to go home, right? And and, and it becomes this sort of like who's going to give in first thing. Um, and I, I will say, I don't think I've seen Ziggy Marley in concert. Well, I mean, did you expect him to be on time? I mean, that's like going to Guns N' Roses being like, what time's the show? It starts at 8. I think we're cool to show up at 10. Dude, this has been a blast. Yes, it has. Um, thank you so much for doing this. And thank you for bringing this record uh, for conversation. If you want to get involved in any of our shows, you know how to do it via email. It's wearethestoryguys at gmail.com. And now you get to... You get to say the fun part. You ready? What do we have to do until next time, Life? Keep telling stories.